Yeah, we are in Matthew chapter 7, so uh, if you want to keep your Bibles there or turn there. We're going to be finishing up the Sermon on the Mount, um, the, the text of it here in the lesson this morning. And what we're going to be focusing on, you know, Jesus has told us a lot of things already, and just about everything that he's said is difficult and challenging and, uh, and hard to do. As a matter of fact, if I ever want uh, to, to be humbled, what I uh, find beneficial is to read the Sermon on the Mount while looking in a mirror, and I'll recognize that uh, I am in just about everything Jesus says, in some way failing to live up to it. And that's a, that's a difficult thing. Uh, it's, it's a challenge because it, it, it makes us want to do several things. Uh, one thing it can make us want to do is uh, find ways that Jesus isn't actually saying what he says so that when I measure myself up to it, I come a lot closer to it. Uh, and, and this is, this is uh, yeah, I, I saw something a while ago, it said basically the history of the interpretation of the Sermon on the Mount is uh, an excellent study in the hist- in evasion. Basically, like, it's just the Sermon on the Mount is basically reading and trying to find ways, okay, how, okay, I know he says to turn the other cheek, but like, Seriously, if someone slaps you in the cheek, are you going to turn the other cheek? You know, it's like, surely he doesn't mean that. So what does he mean? Well, you know, he might mean something like, and like people come up with with really impressive ways of reading the text that make it easier to stomach and easier to read. Um, uh, Martin Luther had the idea of the Sermon on the Mount. Basically, the purpose that it served was to show you the perfect, idealized Christian life. That's what the perfection is. And then when you recognize that you don't measure up to that, the real purpose of the sermon isn't for you to necessarily be that. It is for you to see the difference between the Sermon on the Mount and yourself. And then you'll recognize, well, my only hope isn't perfection because I'll never attain that. My only hope is the grace of God. And so the Sermon on the Mount becomes this lesson in our own frailty and sinfulness, which causes us to want to call out to God for forgiveness and mercy and grace. And so the Sermon on the Mount, that's basically the, the purpose of it. And I like that idea. I think there's value in it. I do think it, when you see yourself not measuring up to what God has called you to be, which none of us do perfectly, is it's a reminder to call out to God for grace and forgiveness. The problem with that interpretation, though, is that Jesus gives a different one at the end of the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus's interpretation isn't, hey, so think about everything that I just said, see where you don't measure up, recognize your own sin and frailty, and rely upon the grace of God. Instead, what Jesus says is, hey, everything that I just said, do it. (laughs) Uh, Jesus ends the Sermon on the Mount by saying, what you, you're supposed to learn from this isn't just supposed to impact your heart and your head. It's actually supposed to impact what you do. What you do matters. What you do matters. And, and while there's always a temptation to read the Sermon on the Mount in some way, I, I know some who read it, and it's, it's slightly different than like Martin Luther's interpretation. The interpretation is basically the Sermon on the Mount is giving you the, the idealized Christian life that will one day be attained. But right now, we still live in a world of darkness and sin, and uh, in, you, you can't, in a realistic sense, live it out. And so it's kind of more of a picture of what uh, the future glorious kingdom will look like. But right now, we have to make, uh, you know, compromises here and there. And, and like, there's, there's just different ways of reading it like that. And again, that's not how Jesus ends it. Jesus ends the Sermon on the Mount by saying, do it. Like, actually live this way. 
Now, having said that, I started off the lesson already saying that I don't do it perfectly. And so I think there's probably truth in both of those things. It is a reminder to rely upon the grace of God. And certainly it's a picture, I think, of what, uh, of what the idealized Christian life uh, looks like and, and maybe perhaps will look like one day. But those things don't remove from us the responsibility and the obligation to take Jesus very seriously, what he says, and to actually try to live this sermon now in our lives. Try to apply it in the way that we live now. And as Jesus says that, there are a number of ways that you can kind of test to see whether or not uh, you're actually taking his words seriously and applying them. And right at the end of the sermon, he gives a, a number of, of dichotomies, a number of, uh, of like two of contrasts of different ways that people will respond to his sermon. And when you look at those contrasts, he gives you some fault, like some ways of knowing what a faulty test is. Like, how do I know if I'm really taking Jesus seriously what he says? One of the things he said, and it's the passage that was just read a moment ago, don't look at the crowd around you and count numbers and think, okay, I'm with the majority. Whew, that means I'm probably doing the same thing. I'll be honest with you. I often follow the crowd. Like, if there's, if there's a line and one of them is really long and one of them is really short, I'm going to assume the short one's short for a reason. I should probably be in the long line because everyone else seems to be in that line. They would surely go to the short line if it didn't matter, right? So, like, there must be some reason this line is growing. And so, like, I, I will often judge what I should be doing based on what the majority of people are doing. And I'll be honest with you, in a lot of areas of life, that's probably a safe thing to do. If you, if you do follow the path that most people take, in a lot of ways, that, that's the conventional wisdom. That's, you know, that's the things that uh, people have done. It's been tried and true and tested for a long time, and that's why the majority of people do it. And so in a lot of ways, following the crowds can be a beneficial thing. When it comes to the teachings of Jesus, he's clear that it's not. As a matter of fact, the logic of the Sermon on the Mount that we saw earlier in the sermon, and it's popped up a number of times, is that if you're going to follow Jesus, you will be different than the crowds. If you're going to follow Jesus, you have to be different. If you just look like the crowds, then you're not the city that's on the hill. You're not the light of the earth or the salt of the earth. If, you're, if you just look like the crowds, then you're one of those cities down below the hill. It's like you're just with them. Uh, and the Sermon on the Mount is intentionally designed to elevate the level of righteousness so that you don't look like everyone else, so that others can see the message of Jesus through your life. And that's why Jesus will say things like, um, well, do not the Gentiles do the same? Do not even tax collectors do that? Do, like, throughout the sermon, he'll use these phrases like, but the other people do that, and you're supposed to be different. Don't be ashamed or afraid of that. If you're a follower of Jesus, you are supposed to be different. And it's not always going to be easy to do. And it's not going to look like the way everyone else lives. It, it is going to be something, sometimes it's even radical. Depending on the culture in which you live, sometimes it's extremely radical what Jesus is calling you to do. But if you take comfort in the fact that, okay, just about everyone's doing what I'm doing, get less comfortable with that. Jesus doesn't want you to be looking like everyone else. There's a wide gate and there's an easy path and so many people will find themselves on it. If you're a follower of Jesus, that's not the path for you. you know, even among religious people, you know, it's, it's not that radical in our culture to say good things about Jesus. 
It's not that radical in our culture to, to uh, even go to church. I mean, you know, a lot of people do that. But I tell you, I don't know of a culture where loving your enemies is actually truly practiced. That is something that is a rare and hard thing to do. And what we tend to do is we say, okay, I know he says love our enemies, but what enemies is he talking about here? And how exactly do you define love? Like, yeah, I'll love them in that I want them to go to heaven. But still, in the things that I say about them and the things that I think about them and what I want to have happen to them, I'm going to act just like everybody else because those are our enemies. And, or, or, yeah, he's talking only about, like, a personal enemy that you might have as a coworker or a brother in Christ or something. He's not talking about, like, real enemies. And again, I think you can read it and you can always try to find ways to make what Jesus says easier so that I can look at my life and think, whew, I don't have to change. I can still hate who I hate, love who I love, and I can just kind of look at the words from a particular perspective so that they don't really call me. I don't think that's what Jesus wants us to do. I think that's, that's the road everyone takes. Everyone loves the people they love and doesn't love, you know, hates the people they hate. Like, like that's, that's just the most common human nature thing in the world. Jesus is calling us to something different. And the Sermon on the Mount is hard to do that. When it comes to lust, Jesus wants us to be different. When it comes to our thoughts about money, Jesus wants us to be different. If we have the same financial goals as everyone else, like, everyone wants more, you know, like, if, if Christ isn't changing that, then it might be an indication that we're on that road everyone's on. And Jesus is saying, you're supposed to view things differently. You remember our theme for the year? One of the reasons we're going through the Sermon on the Mount, because our theme for the year is Christ vision. It's the idea of looking at the world through the lens of Jesus and how that should change the way we see everything. It changes the way you view money. It changes the way you view your relationships. It changes the way you view marriage. It changes the way you view uh, your enemies. And it changes the way you view even, you know, creation itself. Like everything takes on a different look when you view it through Christ. And I think the Sermon on the Mount is one of the most challenging ways of changing the way that we see the world. If at the end of the day, we end up thinking, oh, that's a good, wonderful sermon, but I I live in the real world, and so you have to think this way. That is one of those tests that asks you, okay, am I really on a narrow, difficult path that few people are taking, or have I done the easy thing and followed the crowds? One thing you should not do to ask yourself that is just count heads and say, okay, I'm with the majority. Another thing you shouldn't do, this is another way to fail the test, is, all right, can I find someone— a preacher, a prophet, a speaker, a wise man, a politician, whatever, who will tell me what I'm doing right now is the right thing. Because we can all find that, too. It's like you can get on YouTube and you can find whoever you want who will tell you your political views are right, your view of this uh, controversy is right, your view of this biblical passage is right. You can always find the commentary that agrees with you. That's an easy thing to find. It's like there's a million of them out there and they cover everything and they all take a different perspective. You can find the one for you and you'll love it. But if you open up the Bible— if you open up a commentary, if you turn on the news, if you do whatever, and the only thing you see is, oh, good job. I was already right. I'm pretty sure I was, but this confirms it. Then there's a good indication that you're not actually letting truth guide you. And there's probably a good indication that Jesus isn't the one actually guiding your thoughts. 
if every time you read the Bible, it confirms what you already believe about the Bible, then you're probably leading the Bible in a certain direction rather than the Bible leading you. You should read the Sermon on the Mount and be changed by it. What Jesus says in verse 15 is to beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they're ravenous wolves. You can find the prophet for you if you look hard enough. You can find, you know, uh, King, King Ahab locked up Micaiah because Micaiah was the prophet who did not tell him what he liked. And then he had like his thousands of other prophets and he liked them because they're always like, King, of course you're going to be successful. And by the way, you look great today. It's like he found prophets who told him the things that he wanted to hear that made him feel good, that gave him confidence. But when that prophet who would speak what God wanted would speak, he'd have him locked away in prison. It's like, you can, you can find your prophet if you want to. But Jesus is saying, don't trust the prophets who come to you, even if they look innocent. They look like they're sheep. They, look, they say good things about Jesus. I can find preachers who say good things about Jesus, but they're not actually leading you to the radical life of the Sermon on the Mount. They're out there. There's a lot of them. It's, it's a common thing. Uh, what Jesus is saying is beware of people like that. Because there is a way to know whether or not what they say is actually leading you to truth or not. Um, and it's kind of fascinating. In verse 15 is where he tells them to beware of false prophets. So be on the watch out. Be careful about these prophets. And he gives them a way of determining who they are. And the way of determining who they are is fascinating. If you were to ask me, without thinking about this passage, just ask me, hey, how can you tell if someone is uh, speaking truth or false? I would say, oh, well, look at what they say and like study it and compare it to the Bible and see whether it's accurate or not. That would be my first thought. Um, That's actually not what Jesus says. Jesus gives us another way. There's a passage in the Old Testament, uh, Deuteronomy 18, interesting passage about prophets. And what, uh, what Moses says to do is listen to what the prophet says. If it comes to pass, then it's a true prophet. If it doesn't come to pass, it's a false prophet. And, uh, you know, that's, that's a test right there for you can, you can test prophets. Jesus doesn't give that test either. You know what Jesus says to do? It's right there in verse 16. You will know them by their fruits. Grapes are not gathered from thorn bushes nor figs from thistles. So every good tree bears good fruit, but the bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot produce bad fruit, nor can a bad tree produce good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. So Jesus, you know, he kind of mixes metaphors. He starts off talking about a wolf in sheep's clothing. It's like, how do you know who the wolf in sheep's clothing is? Look at the fruit. Look look at what kind of tree they are. So it's like the wolf is a tree. But you see the, the mixing metaphors, but I think you get the point. It can look like a good tree. It can look like a nice, pleasant sheep. But on closer inspection, you come to find out that inside that sheep is a wolf. And that tree, the fruit that it produces, cannot be eaten. It's rotten, or the, the fruit is, uh, is, isn't satisfactory, doesn't taste good. Like, you can look, and once you do the investigating of what is being produced, that's how you tell. So, and it's not to say don't compare what they say to, you know, to the Bible or something like that, but what Jesus says is you can actually get a shortcut to knowing who a true and false prophet is by looking at what they are actually producing. If you see... Um, a preacher or, uh, you know, someone on YouTube or whoever, and it seems like everything they're producing is divisive. It's causing more anger. It's causing people to, uh, to love their enemies less. 
probably a good indication there that you have not found a true prophet. If you listen to a prophet who is taking you further from what Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount about turning the other cheek, loving your enemy. You've heard that it was said, do not murder. I tell you, do not be angry. Like, you can go through that and, and see what they're producing. What are they producing in their followers? What are they producing in their lives? What are they producing in you? And, and so often, I, I think, you know, there's kind of the mindset, if someone makes you feel good, they must be a false prophet. If someone makes you feel bad, they must be a true prophet. I would say that's not the greatest test either, you know, because your emotional response to it isn't the ultimate source of truth either. Uh, and so there might be some who, I think it happens a lot, um, you can get up there and preach a message, and it so attacks or uh, causes such vitriol to a certain group that at the end of it, you end up hating that group more than you did at the beginning, and you feel like better about yourself because you got elevated, they got denigrated, but did you walk away from that loving your enemies? Did you walk away from that uh, uh, with the mindset that, you know, that rather than an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, you would turn the other cheek, you would give up your cloak rather than hold on to it? Those are the types of tests Jesus is wanting us to take to see whether or not we're actually listening to him or we're just following the crowds or finding the prophet we like. Because, again, listening to Jesus is hard to do and it will go against your natural intuitions and inclinations in just about every way. It will go against what culture tells you to do pretty much no matter what culture you're living in. Um, Jesus in verse 21 through 23 then envisions this, this throne room scene uh, where we're standing before God and we're actually hearing an account of, of what has been done. And he says some rather frightening words. He says in verse 21, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter into the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father who's in heaven. So again, what you do matters. And it's not just the person who can say, you are my Lord and my Master. A lot of people can say that about Jesus. A lot of people can say that and then not listen to the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus says, you know, you... you You'll find it in the world. You'll find even people who will call me Lord, who when it comes down to actually practicing the things that I just told you, they're going to go their own way. They're going to go the way that's most comfortable. They're going to go the way that makes most sense in their culture. They're going to go the way that they were raised. And I'm telling you to live in a different way. He says in verse, tw verse 22 and 23 is fascinating because the response, they, they have a, they have like, wait a minute, God. <laughs> okay, you can say that, but what about all the things that I've done? He says in verse 22, many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name cast out demons and in your name perform many miracles? He gives a list of like prophecy, casting out demons, performing miracles. Like I'll say those are things that like, you know, I, I try to live for Jesus, and I try to take the sermon, and I haven't done those things. <laughs> like, th those are things that, you know, would be, uh, would be considered, like, very high on the spiritual accomplishment chart. It, this passage kind of reminds me of uh, 1 Corinthians 13. If you remember 1 Corinthians 13, it's a famous chapter on love, and Paul begins by asking some rhetorical questions, or, or making some statements about, uh, you know, if I, if I have faith, 
so that I can move mountains. If I can speak with the tongues of uh, languages of men, and even if I have like the greatest gift of tongues you could ever imagine, I could speak with the tongues of angels. If I am so sacrificial that I give my body to be burned, like I, I, I have that much self-sacrifice, I have that much faith, I can speak in tongues in that way, like if I have all that, but if I don't have love, none of that's anything. Like without love, it doesn't matter what other great thing you've accomplished. It boils down to love. And I think what Jesus is saying right here is something similar. Say you have done the greatest miracle the world has ever seen. Say that you have prophesied and it's come true over and over again. You like Deuteronomy 18. You've made the prophecy and it came true. You know, that should, that should say you're, you're trustworthy, right? No, what if, what if uh, you have, uh, have cast out demons? That means even demons are under your authority. Like, what if you've actually done all of that? Okay. Did you love your enemy? Did you speak with unfettered integrity in the way that you addressed other people? Were you faithful in your marriage? Did you, did you give up lust? Did you refuse to insult your enemy when you were angry with them? Or did you call them raka and fool? Like, as you go through and you, those great spiritual accomplishments, those aren't even the test to determine whether or not uh, you have listened to Jesus. It's did you actually do the things that he says? You could have great crowds with you doing the same things. You could have a prophet who tells you everything you're doing is the right thing and is justifying your actions. You could accomplish incredible spiritual accomplishments that no one else has done. And none of those things are actually how you find out whether or not you're listening to Jesus. Jesus is calling us to a way of life that is different than even the religious leaders would have suggested. He's calling us to a way of life that actually entails carrying a cross. Are you carrying a cross? You know, that's one of those interesting things in verse 22. When they list the reasons why God should let them in, they list the great things they've done. They list the, I have cast out demons. I've performed great miracles. I have prophesied correctly. I've done amazing things. And yet what Jesus so often tells his disciples to do is not the thing that brings you glory and greatness. It's actually the other side of that. It's the carrying of the cross. It's the giving up of your life in order to find it. It is not lording it over ones, but becoming the one who washes feet. When they described following Jesus, they didn't describe the acts of humiliation that they endured. They described the great things that they've done that would cause everyone to look up to them. Maybe that's an indication that we've not quite listened to Jesus enough. If we think of greatness in the church as the one who's done everything, maybe recalibrate and remember the one who so often doesn't get recognized for the things that they do. The one who takes the lowliest job that we wouldn't want to have. You know, it's, it's easy to look at like a preacher up on a stage who dresses up and think, oh, he must be super spiritual. I don't know if you guys think that or not. But, uh, but what I'm telling you is the position that gets the recognition, that's not always the one that's actually doing the best kingdom work. That's not always the one that you see embodying who Jesus is calling us to be. And Jesus is calling us to be... <laughs> 
read the Sermon on the Mount, if you do, like, everything it says in the Sermon on the Mount, uh, there's not going to be, like, newspaper articles written about it. <laughs> like, you didn't insult someone <laughs> who you were angry with. They don't write papers about that. You're like, like the, you didn't lust. <laughs> you know, you, you, uh, you weren't concerned. You'll see so many articles about the people who were, like, rich and powerful or the people who responded uh, to their enemies in like manner and maybe were able to make a fool of them or, or whatever. Like, you'll see those things get glory. The things Jesus calls us to do are all things that could so easily be ignored, and yet they're things where by doing them, you become a different kind of person. And so to finish the whole sermon, Jesus describes two different types of people. The one who heard the words that he said and did them, and the the one who heard the words that he said and uh, maybe thought, oh, there's some wisdom there. Or maybe heard the words that he said and thought, oh, that's wise. Or, 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 oh, that's interesting. Or, oh, I'll consider some of that. Or maybe heard him and said, I disagree with that. that. He describes them as two different types of builders. The one who hears the words that he says and then just goes back to living his life the way he always has. That goes back to living his life based on his own conventional wisdom. Who goes back and, and treats others the way that he did previously. Who speaks about his enemies the way he did previously. Who thinks about money the way he did previously. Who thinks about divorce and who thinks about lust and who thinks about all these things the way he always has. That's like the person who's going to build a great house, but he forgets the foundation. And he builds his house on a sand. You can build a house. You can and it might even look nice for a while. Uh, people might, walking past, not even know that, that, that it's missing something really important there. But when the storms of life come, when hardship and difficulty, when persecution, when suffering comes, that house, when judgment comes, that house that was built without the foundation of Christ will crumble. It's the one who hears the words of Jesus and actually does them. He's like the wise man. He's like the one who builds his house on the rock. You know, I think it's so fascinating that Jesus describes him as the wise builder. Again, if you were to ask me, how do you get wisdom? This isn't the good answer, but my first thought, you know, initially might be something like study. (laughs) Learn from wise people. Uh, You know, have life experiences. Talk to people. Like, you know, I I would think, you know, read Proverbs would be something I would say because I'm a preacher. And uh, like, I could could give you ways of getting wisdom, I think. But what Jesus actually says is the wise person is the one, not who like memorizes the sermon. That might be a great thing to do. Not who hears it and learns and does deep exegetical insights into all of the original words and finds out their historical context and comes up with great interpretations. Jesus says the wise person is the one who does it. That's how you get wisdom. And I, 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 the longer that I'm a Christian, the more I've come to believe Christianity there are, there's so much depth you could get into. There's so many ways you could study. There's so uh, many areas of inquiry that are fascinating and enlightening and that could be helpful. But really, at the end of the day, Christianity is better practiced than pondered. Uh, it's better to actually, if you want to test the truth of it, try it and do it rather than just sit in an armchair and think about it and try to answer all of the questions. You know, there, there, are, there are things Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount that if I sit there and I think about, I have a really hard time figuring out how that will actually make things better. There are, there are some of them that I think, man, to me, it doesn't seem like that will always work. 
But what Jesus calls us to do is not to sit back and to ponder and to think and to reflect and to try to figure it all out. You won't get all of the answers that way. If you want to grow, if you want to be committed, if you want to, to see the kingdom of heaven, then do the things that he says rather than just sit back and think about them. And that's my challenge as we bring the lesson to a close. We've spent a couple months talking about the things in the Sermon on the Mount. What I want to encourage you to do is day by day, try to find ways to genuinely implement them into your life. Do you have an enemy? Do you have money concerns? Uh, Are you struggling with lust? What can you do to actually take what he says and not just learn some things about the teachings of Jesus? but to make them a part of your life and your identity and who you are. Jesus wants us to be different. And the Sermon on the Mount is his, uh, his formula for how to do that in a way that brings glory to God. And if we can help you do that, if we can help anyone in here become a Christian this morning, uh, or if you're watching online, uh, we want to invite you to name Jesus as Lord of your life, Change your life into conformity with his will. Have your sins washed away in baptism and live for him from this point forward. And if we can help you do that, you can talk to one of our elders in the back or you can come sit on the front row while we stand and as we sing.